Hey, it's Jay. So my daughter, who's four, is obsessed with this Disney Plus show called Elena of Avalor. And I know if you're a parent, just hearing me say that name caused the theme song to start playing in your head and probably a muscle to start twitching in your face. Anywho, I'd never heard of the character Elena. Apparently she was introduced in 2016. So once my daughter started watching the show, I went to read about this character on the Disney site. And here's what I learned. Number one, Elena's story is universal. And I was like, oh great, I love that Disney made a relatable character for my daughter to watch. So what makes Elena's story so universal? And the article continues. Elena is a young princess who was trapped for 41 years by an evil sorceress inside a magical amulet. Wait, what? They said universal. And the article continues. While her grandparents and sister were protected within a magical painting. Because, you know, family stuff. And here's where it ends. Now that she's free, Elena must now learn to rule as crown princess. That is universal? That is relatable? I mean, she lives in a giant castle on the top of a mountain. That's her house. She flies on a magical tiger with wings. That's her pet. I mean, I like my dog and all, but come on. So what actually makes her story universal? Now, of course, you're probably already a step ahead of me. Silly Jay, the story isn't universal because of all the magical stuff. The story's universal because of the lesson it imparts. And you're right. That same article continues. The lesson Elena is learning is universal, despite her royal status and backstory that's anything but. As the creator of the show, Craig Gerber, says, How do you learn to be a good leader while learning to be a good sister and a good granddaughter and a good friend? Well, I'm trying to be a good leader, and I'm also trying to figure out how to be a good dad and a good husband and a good friend. So move over, sweetie. I gotta watch Elena of Avalor with you. The question is, what makes a story connect with others? I think people in the arts and the media understand that a story is relatable because of its emotional stakes, not its topics or its action. There's a paradox, and this paradox trips us up as business storytellers today. When a personal story we tell doesn't connect with others, we blame the topic or the action. Well, I guess my audience of marketers doesn't care that I love Italian cuisine since my story about Italian food didn't connect, so I have to walk back away from my own personal interests and talk more directly, and I think generically, about marketing. Today, marketers all care about this thing, and here are six ways that marketers can adopt this thing. Blah. So you and I make the attempt, we talk about whatever we love as a source of metaphor or insight from cooking Italian food, I learned this, which applies to your work like that. But then, when we don't see any replies, we blame the topics or the action of the story. I guess they're not interested. But really, it's our failure to arrive at, or even develop more fully, the emotional stakes. That's the paradox. To connect deeper externally, we have to move deeper internally. We don't fail to connect with others because we turned inward to tell a story about our lives. We fail to connect because we don't go inward enough. It's hidden, non-obvious, but powerful. Keep, 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 keep it going. It's unthinkable how creators learn to trust themselves more than conventional thinking. Yeah. Yeah.
I'm Jay Akunzo, and I want everyone, including you, to make things that matter more to their careers, their companies, and their communities. So on the show, we tell stories of people who made the leap from what best practices said you have to do towards what their intuition was urging them to try. I think we can all do that because as you hear each episode, it's only unthinkable till you hear their side of the story. And today's story is about well, a story, because today is the next episode in a miniseries called Signature Stories. In this miniseries, we're asking accomplished business storytellers to bring us one story that they're either developing or have used to build their brands and reputations. And together, we're going to hear the story, dissect it, and talk about ways to make it better and ways that it shows up in their work as experts, marketers, brand builders, and leaders. Today, we're going to hear from Amanda Natividad. Amanda is the VP of Marketing at audience research startup SparkToro. There, she works with the CEO and co-founder, a legendary digital marketer named Rand Fishkin. You'll hear the story of how Amanda joined forces with Rand in a little bit. But marketing is actually Amanda's third career. She was previously a tech journalist and then a test kitchen cook for the LA Times. She also writes a popular newsletter called The Menu, very appropriately, The Menu. And in that newsletter, she shares a short post about marketing, four curated links, and then one actual food recipe, but without the food blogger backstory. Seriously, what's going on with food blogs? Like, could you just get to the recipe already? Like, I don't need your entire family history with lasagna. Anyway, without further ado, our Signature Stories episode with Amanda Natividad. How would you say you use stories to support your work? Like, where does this skill show up for you specifically? The way I approach my work is everything I publish has some version of, of one of my stories in it. And now it doesn't follow a narrative format, right? We're like, here's a story of how I did this. It's sort of like, I kind of tend to give like the framework or the tip or like, here's how to do this. And by the way, here's how I know here's what I did in a similar situation. Mm, and okay. I've, I've always kind of approached, I, and I say always, like it's been so long, but it's only been a couple years. <laughs> but since I've like been publishing under my own IP, under my own name, I've approached it like, well, as long as I'm, as long as I'm talking from my own experiences and my own stories, nobody can say I'm wrong. You know, like you can mm. say like, oh, actually when I tried this, I got a different outcome. And that person isn't wrong either, right. but... I, and, and I also just felt like it was more refreshing as a sort of differentiator for myself. Like anybody can go and read all the things from David Ogilvy. Like anyone can do that. <laughs> I am not that person. <laughs> I can only write about the things that I tried and been like, hey, like here's some shitty writing I did or here's some great ad copy that I did. So, yeah. And nobody has like access to that. That's the beautiful thing about when you pull yeah. from your personal lived experiences, whether it's like illustrative, like I did this and let me show you how I did this. So that's illustrative or it's more metaphorical. Like I mm -hmm. was walking the dog and noticed this and that made me realize this other thing. And then that's this is what it means for our work because I teach marketers, for example. Yeah, totally. Were you always creating like as a kid? You know, I know you have a history with food and being a chef and being mm -hmm. a cook, a test kitchen cook for the L.A. Times. But when you were really little in anything, food, writing, media, something else, were you creating? Do you have memories of that? Always. Ever since I could pick up a pencil. I started writing short stories in kindergarten. For, for funsies, not for yeah. homework. 
a little bit of both where it was like if the if the assignment in school was like write a sentence about this thing i would just write a little story like the, the first ever story i wrote was about like animal crackers coming to life and then chasing after me hell yeah i kind of always did it and then i think like in fourth grade i wrote another story and this was like it was a long story and i gave it to my teacher as a gift so like i've always been doing something like that i think i invented newsletters because in in sixth grade, I had an, a newsletter for a fictional band that I made up. The band was called Fufu and the Dust Bunnies. And it was a weekly newsletter <laughs> that, like, I would send out, like, wave files. Remember that? Yeah. I would send, like, graphics pulled from E-Bombs World. And if I was really fancy, I would send someone a link to, like, a Homestar Runner video. Oh, yeah. Oh, my gosh. Speaking my language. <laughs> It was like I positioned it as like, oh, like here's the band updates. We got we took some new headshots. Here's our new music video. When it was all just like, I mean, I wasn't, you know, I wasn't actually pretending I made this content, right? It was just sure. I was linking people out, and my classmates were like, I, I was also this really like shy and quiet kid, so my classmates were like, I didn't know that you were kind of weird or like kind of funny. <laughs> There's so much I could say. We could have a whole hour-long conversation about just the name Fufu and the Dust Bunnies and how spectacular that is, Amanda. Fufu and the Dust Bunnies? Please yeah. make that real. But like, when you're writing and creating, you can be whoever you want to be. It's this, this different type of expression, which is still you, but it's not the you that your classmates got. So they assumed you are, capital letters, like, shy or introverted but really yeah. what you were maybe saying there was like yeah in the classroom of 30 or whatever kids or in that setting but totally. not overall as a human as evidenced by your writing yeah no, to that's exactly it right like i wasn't being somebody new it was like that's who i was but it was not in my character to be right. a class clown and like raise my hand and make the class of 30 kids laugh. I get this a lot, like because I spent so many years speaking and still do a lot of speaking and speak in a microphone and show up virtually on video and all these things about performance. And because performance or performative is often used as a critique derisively, like you don't want to seem like you're mm. performing or, you know, but, but it's like, but I, but I am like right now, if I feel tired or, sad or frustrated or scatterbrained you know i have to switch it on on the microphone and being natural at that is like sort of where you're heading as a performer or an actor or a musician or an author giving an interview like wherever you are performance itself is not bad i think it's just the ability to like lift traits and material and format those traits and, and that material for a certain delivery vehicle well mm -hmm. that is quote performance Versus like if I was just chatting with you as a friend, I would sound very different. So I don't know. This word performance, I think people started to twist almost like authenticity. It's almost like yeah. the opposite of authentic is performative. And I'm like, well, no, yeah. we're not really understanding either of those words. And again, we can go down a rabbit hole of an hour long conversation about these terms. But I'm curious. You're so in the public eye now with a, several large social media profiles that you have and appearances on shows like this. Do you feel like this word performance has started to matter to you in some way? Or what is your relationship to that notion when people discuss it? I mean, I agree. It, it's super important, right? Like, and it doesn't mean the opposite of authenticity because I guess the way I think of performative is 
I just think of it as emoting, right? Like if you and I are just having a regular conversation as two friends, not recorded, like, yeah, I'd, I might slouch in my seat a little bit, right? Or here's another thing. If, if this video were being used, I would be more mindful about looking into the camera every now and then. But I'm not. I'm looking at you on my screen. <laughs> and that's fine. But I, think, I guess like maybe one thing I would say is there are different layers to being performative, right? And I think it all relates to what are the things that are happening at any given moment? Like what are the needs? What are the features that are present in a given moment? And then how do you utilize each of them mm -hmm. in a sense? So I think of it as yeah. it's me or it's you contextualized for yeah. where are we right now it's a podcast we're aware this is why it drives me nuts when i show up to a podcast interview as a subject and they didn't tell me ahead of time they were going to use the video because mm. there is like a mental thing i mean i'm i think yeah. you and i are good enough now where we can just switch it on but like mm -hmm. especially early on in my career i was like oh i gotta get up now i gotta get ready like it's on camera or i didn't do my hair today or whatever but i think it's about like you don't want all of me on a stage all of me on a mic you want the bits of me consciously considered and internalized so I'm not like thinking through and now I'm doing this but just in a natural way considered and executed and practiced to show up as best I can in this specific context like a being of service to you whether yes. that's teaching entertaining a blend of both that's how I think of it, it performance is the self contextualized absolutely yeah and then the different layers are like things like if you want to put like podcasts an audio only podcast at kind of the lowest layer of performance. And I might say lowest only in the sense that then your most, what's probably most important is using your voice to make sure you're not being monotoned or to make sure you're being mindful of not saying um so much, mm -hmm. like those things. And then maybe the next layer above that is video, like recorded video at home or whatever, where then maybe you're cognizant of certain hand gestures where you want to use them, but you don't want to flail around like a weirdo. Yeah. <laughs> and then that maybe the next layer would be an in-person, like on-stage conference where you're using your whole body, you're pacing across the stage, you're pointing out people in the audience, making direct eye contact with various people in various parts of the room. Mm. But like, you wouldn't be standing up pacing your office if you were doing any kind of recorded podcast or like YouTube show. If I were to put an x-ray lens over your writing or really anywhere you show up and I could spot little elements, little spice taken from other people, who would I spot? Like people talk about their influences, oh. but like where is that showing up in your actual work? If I include like a quirky detail or some kind of quirky setup like a small or like a small joke, like a, like one sentence. That's when I feel like like I'm influenced by Anne Handley and her writing because yeah. yeah. I I think she's I mean she's 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 Anne Handley. Oh my god, so funny and witty, but you wouldn't describe her as a comedic writer. <laughs> like that's not <laughs> what she does, right? Mm. But she is funny. So there's so there's that, and she is quirky, but her work is so much more than that, right? And then the other one that I, I actually immediately came to mind, but I was kind of embarrassed to say because it might sound inauthentic, is you. Like, Stop for years, <laughs> for years, you've been saying the importance of being refreshing, not different. And mm. that was one of the things that, as I was discovering your work, 
that really stuck out to me as like that encapsulated what I was trying to do, what I've been trying to do with my work that I think to some degree I had kind of intuitively already been doing, Mm -hmm. but I hadn't put it into words. And so once I heard be like, be someone's favorite, don't be the best, be refreshing, don't just be different. Like those are things that I was like, that's what I'm trying to do. When I say that it's different is there's a lot of stunts people pull to separate. But when you say I want to be different, the implied question you're answering is different from whom? The competition, the people around whatever set of things you are trying to be different from. And that's focusing your gaze on the wrong people. Refreshing, that's refreshing to whom? It's the audience, right? And it's almost like refreshing equals different and welcome, not simply different. Like I could give a talk to an audience live with my back turned to them. I am 100% could not be more different in the moment. Like through the roof success on that front, but I'm also unwelcome. So zero out of 100 on that front. So don't be different, be refreshing. I love that. And thank you for paying homage to that idea. I I love that so much. And I also just want to add on, like when you're thinking about like be different from whom, you're making it about the people who are not your audience, right? If If you're thinking about refreshing to whom, that is the audience centric approach. It's being in service to your readers, your listeners, to the people who really matter. Because ultimately, like, it doesn't matter what your competition is doing. They can do their own thing. They should do their own thing. Who mm-hmm. cares? <laughs> like, you shouldn't even have to pay attention to that. I mean, not on a real level. Like, sure, look, do Intel. I don't know. <laughs> um, but I just think, who cares what other people are doing? Mm-hmm. Do it for your audience. I love that. A couple years ago, as I kind of, as I was in this more intermediate kind of stage of audience building, I felt like the person that I was trying to be refreshing to was one of my marketing heroes, Rand Fishkin. And that became clearer to me once he followed me back on Twitter, because at the time I had a few, I think I had a few thousand followers, not a ton. And when he followed me back, I was mortified. Like, I I think I just closed the app and was like, I'm not tweeting for like at least a week. I thought through, like, why would he follow me? He's not following me because he doesn't understand content marketing and needs help with it. (laughs) And that sort of had me revisit just the way that I showed up online. Yeah. Like, I was a little bit less conscious of being like, I got to give all the frameworks for all the marketing things. And I started being a little bit more like, well, what's unique about me? What's What might be refreshing about me? How can I infuse more of my experiences, my worldviews into the work that I produce every day? So what is the story that we're gonna go into today? What is it about? And then where have you used it, if anywhere? It's the story of how I joined SparkToro or how I met Rand Fishkin, my boss. So. Unlike a lot of the other episodes we're doing in this miniseries, you have brought me this written document. I love this because it's a new look at this story, which I think you undersold. Um, <laughs> you have three different intros bulleted out. So if you'd like, we can yeah. just straight up start with the intros, take them yeah. one at a time. I won't judge them, but just let us know when you're moving between them. So this is about two pages in a Google Doc, so it won't take long. So why don't you tell us, here's one intro, here's the second, here's the third, and then we'll talk about it. Yeah. Okay, let's do it. Okay. 
So here's the first one. Throughout my career, I had been unhappy in a given role, laid off or furloughed. And the more senior I got, the more frustrated I got that job hunting wasn't getting any easier. I was just getting better at it. I got really good at staying organized with my outreach and follow-up. I got better at compartmentalizing and setting aside any salty feelings about putting together free marketing strategy presentations for companies that weren't even going to hire me. And I got better at handling rejection, but the slog never felt any different. All right, so this is the next one. When I joined the creator life about three years ago now, I definitely was not confident that it would actually work. I tuned into a couple of free audience growth resources, and I was astounded by how simple the frameworks ultimately were. I had never taken the time to try to reverse engineer them on my own. And the frameworks were basically pick a niche, optimize your bio for that niche, say you'll write about that niche, and then create the content and almost exclusively that content for a few months, and then you'll see traction. Simplistically, that's exactly what I did, and it actually worked. That's the second one. All right, and then the third one. It was probably seven years ago at this point that I noticed peers building personal brands, and usually in small ways. They would do it at cross-functional meetings at a company or post occasionally on LinkedIn. And I was jealous. I had always self-identified as a writer or creator, even though I hadn't done a whole lot of it as an adult. As a kid, I'm going to go ahead and say that I, I basically invented the newsletter as we know it today. In sixth grade, I had this weekly newsletter for a fictional band that I made up, Fufu and the Dust Bunnies. I'd share funny wave files, images from E-Bombs World, remember that? And when I got really fancy, I might even include a link to a video. Homestar Runner, anybody? And all of these bits of media were positioned as the band's new headshots or the new single. And then later, you know, in junior high to high school, I worked my way up to an AOL hometown page, a blog spot, a live journal, and then a Zanga. By college, I was trying and failing miserably to write funny stuff on college humor. But when I joined the corporate fray after college, I stopped. I wanted to be taken seriously in my journalism job and then in my B2B marketing job. So you can imagine that in my heart of hearts, I felt like a creator, even if a few years ago, I was like five years removed from publishing anything truly under my own name. Eventually, I got sick of sitting on the sidelines. And so I joined the game. Awesome. And now the, the meat of the story in which you joined the game. Yeah. So the meat of the story, uh, it was around February 2021. I'd been creating and publishing under my own name and writing from my own hard-won experiences for about six months. So I was getting traction and had gone semi-viral in a couple times, which I felt like is ideal to go semi-viral, not viral-viral. <laughs> And then the unthinkable happened. One of my marketing heroes, Rand Fishkin, followed me back. And I was mortified. Like, why would he want to look at my thoughts? 
Eventually, I mustered up the courage to DM him with a hello, and I think I just kept it simple. I think I I said I was a fan. I thanked him for sharing his knowledge with the marketing community, and that was kind of it. A few months later, he and his wife, Geraldine DeRoyter, were on a podcast together where the host had them introduce each other. Rand proudly talked about Geraldine's writing achievements, including her James Beard Award, and Geraldine joked that his name was Randy Fishteen. And Rand had tweeted this, and I thought of this as just, I just thought it was funny. I left a silly comment about wanting to own the domain randyfishteen.com, and Geraldine even joked with me you know, on Twitter about trying to rank first for Rand Fishkin's name. And then I ended up buying the domain for only $15, and I screenshotted that and posted it in Rand's replies. From there, you know, we just sort of laughed about it. Rand was like, oh, gosh, no. Um, but then a few weeks later, Rand reached out and said he and Geraldine would be in my hometown of Los Angeles and asked if I'd be interested in meeting for lunch. So one, yes, yes, of course. <laughs> uh, and then some maybe additional life context. This was spring 2021. And so many of us were getting vaccinated and starting to go out again. And I think this was even their first trip ever since before the pandemic. So of course, like for my career or as a creator, this was exciting, but also on a personal level, it was exciting. Like I was going to eat at a restaurant again. (laughs) So there was that. So after I fell out of my seat and accepted, I decided to work on a gift for them. And I took that domain, randyfishteen.com, and I made a microsite. Uh, I knew they were going to be they were going to be spending time in San Diego and Los Angeles, so I made them a list of restaurant recommendations with like images and dishes and suggestions for what to order, uh, and they loved it. Like I, I I sent it to Rand and was like, oh by the way, here I made this for you. Sent him a link, just through DMs, and he just he just replied, holy shit, in all caps, and that was it. <laughs> um, and then we met and we had that fateful lunch. I even brought their books with me so that they could sign them. And my husband, who obviously was supportive of this fan move, he he was like, just to be clear, like, make sure you do that at the end of the meeting, because that's going to be super weird if you just come in and go, hello, sign my books. Um, So I, I definitely left it for the end. So we had lunch, we jammed for like two hours. And I should also say I was employed at the time and thus not not exactly desperate for a job, even though I wanted to work with Rand. So the other thing was that I was I felt like I was able to really be myself and rant and rave freely about the corporate world and the marketing world and just be super honest about things I hated and things I loved. And then towards the end of lunch, I finally said it. I said, wait, I don't need a job, but can I pitch you on my dream job at SparkToro? And I swung for the fences. Like, I was like, here's, here's what I think you need. Here's what I think I can do. I think I, and I think at the time, I actually pitched myself as a chief of staff for Rand and for the company. And it was like, I think, I think here are the things that you need help with. Um, here's how I, I think I can make an impact at SparkToro. And, um, you know, it went well. But then, like, I concluded with a sudden fear that just jumped into my head. And I was just like, oh, by the way, I'm really not that good at SEO. (laughs) And Rand looked at me sort of just baffled. And he was like, 
you know, I think I think we're good on that front. <laughs> so he he was Rand was interested. After that, he introduced me to Casey, the supposed Grumpus, but Casey was wonderful and is wonderful and so nice. And the rest was history. Thank you for sharing that, first of all. I love it. I love it. Um, You had said to me before that in these versions, in these three different intros, that you were kind of apologizing ahead of time. You were like, listen, they're all different, but they're all the same in that it's detail, detail, detail. There's not an arc to these intros. There's not stakes. But as I hear this back, you know, you framed it as, well, these are the beginnings of an essay or an article about how having an online writing practice or having shipped content online under your own name on social media or elsewhere, how all of that changed your life. So I'm just wondering, having said that up front, then having been forced to read these versions, are you seeing it differently? Are there changes you're thinking of making? Does that statement still hold true? Like walk me through what's in your head now that you've had an extra rev uh, at reading these things. Yeah. I mean, now, now, yeah, now as I say it out loud, I am thinking about connecting those hooks with the meat of the story. And so, you know, talking about like how publishing online changed my life. Now, I, I like hearing that with fresh ears, I think, wait, how did you go from publishing online to this story? Like, wait, how did publishing online lead up to you meeting one of your marketing heroes? Like, you said that it happened, but like, how? What? Yeah. Huh? How did you get noticed? Like, why did why did you matter to Rand? Do you know why you mattered? Like, those are the questions I would have, I think, yes. as a listener. <laughs> Th- this is a story where the forward action, this happened, this happened, this happened, tends to move forward too quickly. And what you could do is stay in that moment and, and visit it in a more specific, vivid way. Like a really easy example is... Um, it's all leading to the meeting in LA with Rand, right? I would even argue you don't need to come to the conclusion that the rest is history and you met his co-founder Casey and got the job. Mm. People know you got the job. You're saying this is how I got the job. The real important meat of this story is kind of like the moment within the meeting when you become yourself, right? When you meet your hero and you also like have a great conversation with your hero. So when you're walking in to the lunch, what happened? And you kind of touch on it, but I want to know, like, so you open the door and it did it. It felt weird. You're like consciously thinking of your hand extending in front of your body, gripping this metal and opening it up. And then you're like, wait a second. I don't even know where they're sitting. Oh, my gosh. What? I'm going to look around like a fool or like when you walked in, you're like, and there was Rand, and he didn't even see me at first. And now my brain was going. Now's the time you can turn around and run. Like, get me into those really tiny moments and isolate them and, and exaggerate them or at least remember what it felt like in that moment, because it did feel like some kind of epic quest. Yeah. I actually have thought of a couple of other things that happened before our meeting that I didn't include in the story and Mm. that I've never told because I don't think they're interesting, but I think they're impactful and they contribute to the reason why Rand eventually said, hey, do you want to meet up for lunch? Take, you could take one. You know, it's almost yeah. like the, uh, like a really good story is almost like it's they're like they're little tiny story arcs within it, right? Like you think about film, it's like oh, it's the three act structure, and you, the acts themselves have an arc to it. Now you're not in the business necessarily of doing epic films, but there's a piece of that. Um, I want to go back to the intros because I'm mm-hmm. curious, having forced you to read them all, and thank you for doing that. 
just to quickly summarize, I'll summarize them quick for context, but after I do so for the listener's sake, I want you to judge like which one you thought was the strongest. So intro one is about you hunting for a day job and then some things happened, you got better at it, but you realize it's always a slog. Intro two is about not being confident that the creator thing is gonna work. So you took some courses, they had frameworks that seemed overly simple, but you tried them and they worked. And then intro three was Foo Foo and the Dust Bunnies and inventing the newsletter and all that. Mm-hmm. And where you felt removed from the type of person which is a creator that you used to be. Mm-hmm. And kind of what happened next to, in your words, join the game. Yeah. So of those three, which do you feel like a kinship towards or yeah. a preference for? So I love hearing you describe them because in my mind, my descriptions are the first one is, and okay, in my mind, the descriptions are audience focused. Like, so when I say that, I mean the first intro that I had, that to me is for the corporate workers, like people who are job hunting and want to create some leverage from themselves or they dream of creating leverage for themselves. The second one is for aspiring creators like people who want to build an audience online. And the third one, I kind of feel like in a way the audience is me. Like that's like me saying like, here's how I felt. Like I was jealous and yes. I, I wasn't who I thought I was. Like yes. I'm a creator, but I wasn't actually doing it for like five years. Like, mm-hmm. and and like I, I say that, I mean, I, I created white papers and case studies and like, those things had my name on it for a corporate entity, like my name and the corporate entity. Like I, it was, I was, it was my work, but I wouldn't say like, Oh, I'm a creator because I made this corporate case study. Like, no, (laughs) that was just my job. Right. But yeah, you just showed me something so profound about storytelling, Amanda, which is the first description. uh, This is what it's about. The second description. This is what it's about. The third description is about this. Your voice. You just became a completely different version of yourself describing that third one, which you said the audience is you. And that version was way more gripping, way more warm, way more you. So what I got from the first two, even though you used me and I and first person pronouns there. You, it's kind of a generalized version. What I heard was, mm-hmm. here's what one goes through when interviewing for your best dream corporate job. Here's yeah. what one goes through as a creator. And then the third one is, here's what I have been through and what I am still going through. And there is so much more connectivity in a weird way there than generalizing. Because first of all, why am I getting that from you? Well, here's why. You know, it's this band name. I think I invented the newsletter. Like, it's the, all the details that make you you, but also... That one is way more real. It's not some like a bot could have created it version. And I think we shy away from that because it's like, well, wouldn't shouldn't you talk to one? Shouldn't you talk to marketers? Shouldn't you talk to creators? What you should really be doing is talking to the person, talking to the people. And that was the only one that did it. I've never invented stuff like you invented there, like one to one, but I was extrapolating out the emotions. And then because we connected on the emotional level, Although your details are different, I was filling in my own, right? Mm. I was like, oh, and in my world, that showed up like this. It doesn't feel like this is what's going to get taught in like some kind of corporate marketing class to how to like write to the audience, but it does the job better. That's so funny to me. Because I I worry that the third one would sound more self-serving or self-centric, that people wouldn't see themselves in it. I thought the first two, and maybe it is true on a broad 
very on the broadest level that more people can see themselves in the first two. I think everyone like who here doesn't relate to feeling trapped in some way during a job hunt. Ah, but here's the thing. (laughs) You just told me that you felt Mm -hmm. trapped. You Mm -hmm. didn't show me that you felt Mm -hmm. trapped. So where you showed me anything was the third one. And the only way you can show me something, well, there's two ways. One is you go and tell the story of someone else. Or you could do what Anne Handley does. You could do what I do. You could do what you do, quite frankly, very well, Amanda, which is I'm going to show you so it's inescapably clear both the emotions and the lessons here. And I can only do that if I pull from the things I've actually seen the things I've actually lived so I am like so over the moon excited about this revelation that like we're leading both listeners and each other towards which is like wait a second the more specific more personal you got the more you showed me what I needed to hear even though you moved further and further from talking directly about my world by talking about yours I would say like take that realization and play it forward into the story you get rid of your concerns about like this is just detail 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 so like one example I jotted down was the moment he DM'd, take me there, or quite frankly, invent it if you can't remember. As David Sedaris says, my stories are true enough for you. So, like, he's not just in your DMs. It's Rand Fishkin. Like, your heart was beating. Something was happening, right? So it's like, so one day, a couple of weeks after he followed me, and we had this fun exchange. I'd, like, completely forgotten about that. And I was, I remember I was, like, cleaning up. I have a toddler, blah, 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 blah. And I was just, like, casually checking my DMs. And, like, I saw Sam sent me a meme. Sam's my friend who always sends me these crazy memes. It's like, ha-ha, I'll respond to Sam. Here's some weird spammer trying to, like, sell me some software service I don't need. I just delete that. And here's Rand Fishkin in my DMs. Cool, cool. Wait a second. Here's Rand Fishkin. Fishkin in my DMs? What? <laughs> right? Like, that's more specific than one day Rand was in my DMs. I mean, gosh, in that moment, I think what was actually happening was, yeah, I was with my toddler. My husband and I were still splitting childcare. So, like, I got the message and, like, looked at my kid. And I was, like, dancing to the Daniel Tiger soundtrack and was like, what do you, what? And I was just like, I got it tell my husband, but he's working and, oh my God, I'm freaking out. Yeah. I have no one to externalize any e- of this Except with. for your toddler, right? <laughs> yeah. Right, and that feeling of like, but, you know, you're you're putting it on your toddler in yeah. that moment, right? And then there could be some kind of funny follow-up of, and all I was met with was, I want a snack, or like, or I, and I'm pretty sure maybe his drool got a little bit faster, which I took to mean like, respond right away, mama, and so I did. You know, there's like something there. It's impossible for me not to go, I gotta subscribe to Amanda. Like, who could relate to that? Well, everybody, because we're all human, as long as you bring out the, the human bits. Yeah. That's just this awesome connectivity there. So I think this story, although you undersold it, is so profoundly close to being something just undeniable in its power. And it doesn't take much. It doesn't take like, I wish there was some dramatic moment with Rand. It just takes like a revisiting of like the five different beats in that story that there was something going through your mind or your heart or both and like showing me that. Oh, I love that. Yeah. Of all the story stuff we just talked about, what still feels like, you know what? The advice we get, the culture I'm in, doesn't feel like it's conducive to this, to doing it this way. Mm. I I love this question of where in our culture does it not feel conducive to a story like this? I love this question. Because we as marketers, marketer creators or marketer creator hybrids, 
we are conditioned to believe that we, we really need to do. And I and I and I, I say we are we are conditioned, but you know what? I am part of the people who are saying this, so I'm I'm actively contributing to this too, <laughs> which is to like always lead with value. Like make sure you are saying something valuable to the reader. However, yes, value is subjective, right? It doesn't have to mean you have to give all the frameworks for the things. That's one example of value. Your value prop doesn't have to be that. But in this in this encouragement or this like pro value kind of world that I think sometimes pushes us to forget to include the details that make us human or the the details that make our stories truly relatable on this level of like oh, I used to feel that way or like I see myself in that Thanks for listening. This episode was written and edited by me with production help from Alana Nevins. Special thanks to Amanda for her creativity and generosity. If you share the episode, and I hope you do, please remember to thank her too. And if you want to become a more effective storyteller, if you're an expert who wants to become an influential voice, three resources I would direct you to. Number one, there's my free newsletter called Playing Favorites. Every other Friday, I send one idea to help you resonate deeper with your work. That's playing favorites. And there's a link in my show notes to subscribe, or you can go to jayconzo.com to join for free. Second, there are two paid offers of mine, my coaching, where I work one-to-one with people to develop a show, a speech, or their overall personal brands, and my membership, which is the Creator Kitchen. That's for ongoing support, almost like group coaching with roundtables, office hours, masterclasses, and tutorials that I don't share anywhere else, and a wonderful community of 50-plus business storytellers. So that's my coaching or the membership creator kitchen. There are links to all these in your show notes, or again, you can go to jayaconzo.com. I'm back in two weeks with a new episode of the show, but until then, as always, keep making what matters. See ya. Fufu and the dust bunnies. Fufu and the dust bunny. Are you kidding me right now with that? Come on.